the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The purity of the church is about being set apart for God. Not just because we attend church, not just because, oh, I'm set apart. You guys out there, you're all watching football right now. I'm set apart because I'm here. That's part of it. That's not all of it, not even close. It's not even our various rituals and, and customs. It's our strict moral standards and why we hold to those moral standards. We are not to withdraw from the world, but we are to speak and behave in a manner that is different than the world. So much so that our conduct makes professing Christians who ignore biblical morality feel unwelcome and very uncomfortable. We should live in a way that we, before we even say anything, they're uncomfortable. Even if that speech and behavior that we exhibit is directed specifically at them in the form of admonishment. And when we do that, that keeps us pure as a body, but also as an added benefit, it keeps our testimony pure. I want you to be very careful as you live out your life that you understand this is an added benefit. I've spoken before about how wrong it is to live the Christian life purely motivated by a good testimony. That's just a a spiritualized form of the fear of man. We are to be motivated by God's glory and worship of Him and of testimony. Good testimony will naturally result. But as a side benefit, as an added bonus, it keeps our testimony pure. In other words, we don't mar our testimony and integrity in such a way that it hinders our evangelistic efforts. As Jesus said, if salt has become tasteless, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under men's feet. And sometimes people say, well, I kind of need to compromise in order to build that relationship for the gospel. And let's say they finally hear the gospel. You really think your friend, your relative is not going to see through the hypocrisy? Are you really modeling the life, the compromise that you want them to live should your prayers be answered and that they get saved? I mean, you don't even need me to say this. Look at all the churches you guys left to come to this church, the seeker-sensitive, the seeker-friendly. They compromise for evangelism. How's that going for them? Well, they're building a new building because they've doubled their congregation. Yeah, how many are saved? How many even know they're sinners? Well, I'm sure, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe because they don't preach sin there. You you see my point? You may get people to come along, but they're not saved. How can they be if you've compromised the gospel? And so, we must be salt and light. We must keep our integrity and our testimony pure and according to God's Word, never letting anyone convince you that if you compromise that you will win more. It just is not biblical. It grieves the spirit. It makes you the one in power, not God, in evangelism and salvation. And then it keeps the church pure. You need to understand that as hard as it may be for us, these unrepentant Christians 
have themselves forfeited the right to fellowship. That is a privilege. It is a gift. And for us to fellowship them would be condoning their sin and disregarding the command to maintain the holiness of the church. That is proper for us to be able to be in the presence of the Lord. Let's backtrack for a minute and look at this list of sins. Keep in mind that these are sins that are not repented of for them to warrant church discipline. And even the way that even, even the words indicate something that's, you know, far deeper than, oh, I got drunk once, or far worse than, oh, I visit a Buddhist temple on my trip to Malaysia, or, you know, oh, I, I blew it with my girlfriend one time, or whatever it may be. This is unrepentant, continuous sin. I've already briefly explained immorality as sexual immorality. This is someone who is frequently satisfying his or her lusts with sexual indulgence. This would include prostitution. This was very common in Corinth. This was very common uh, in the cult temples. It was part of their worship of these false gods. So I would also clarify this is either soliciting a prostitute or being a prostitute. This would include homosexuality. This would include any obscene sexual acts, not according to the world, mind you. This would be, of course, anything involving children, relatives, animals, and unmarried individuals. Yes, premarital sex or sex with someone who is not your spouse is on the same list of vices and comparable to bestiality and pedophilia in the eyes of God. You need to understand this. It is immorality. Covetous is the next one, or greed or greedy in many of your translations. This is the sin of seeking to fulfill one's desires at all costs, including at the expense of others. It's a word for those who overreach, those who want more and more. It's never enough for them. And when it's never enough, you're not satisfied with what is yours. And you can see how jealousy and greed go hand in hand. Thankfulness, of course, is the antidote. The greedy or the covetous are clearly not content or grateful to the Lord for what they have. And it's not uncommon for such people to defraud or take advantage of others for what they want because their lives are about having more stuff. Their lives are not about serving people. Avarice, if you're familiar with that word, is a very good English word for what Paul is talking about here. Although last on the list uh, in our verse here, swindler is second in verse 10. And that is because covetous and swindler are joined with a single definite article and they go hand in hand. You can't be a swindler without being covetous. This is the person who takes it a step further and is even willing to use violence to get what he wants. A professional thief or robber would be a would be this, to use violence, right? They try to sneak in and sneak out, but if they're caught, they will use violence. Extortionists are an example of a swindler. But this could also include even those who, who uh, loan out money at exorbitant interest rates, either a professional loan shark, for example, or even you trying to be greedy and helping out a relative or friend but just give a crazy 
uh, interest rate or interest rate at all. Or even someone who squeezes the poor to make a buck. In Paul's day, the general perception that people had uh, was that the supply of goods was enough only so long as you could convince or suppress the poor to not have as much. And so it was very common to be a swindler. The greedy would come in and swindle, thus threatening the balance of society and causing an even deeper poverty for others because they got rich by depriving and defrauding other people. An idolater, you know what this is, very common in the ancient world. This would have included almost all of the non-Christian population of Corinth. It was a very religious time, uh, not the true religion, but everyone worships some sort of idol, or almost everyone. And an idolater is simply someone who worships a false god. Keep in mind that Paul is referring to those in the church, remember, those who call themselves Christians. So there were those who would call themselves Christians but still follow after gods that, in reality, were no gods at all. Now, the first three that we covered were particularly rampant in ancient Corinth. But he also goes on and says reviler. A reviler is an insulter, uh, someone who's really abusive. He attacks others with harsh and abusive language. This covers all kinds of verbal abuse, and it reflects the kind of coarse language that is not proper in mixed company and was often associated with the dregs of society. You understand this. Although it has been popularized by Hollywood and certain genres of music, there is still less now than there were a generation ago. But generally speaking, even in our society, there is a type of profane, coarse language that you associate uh, with poor, less educated type of people. This is what we're talking about. Ultimately, like all of these, it's a, it's a hard issue. The reviler doesn't care about anyone's reputation, doesn't care about loving or honoring other people. Every time they open their mouths, it seems they are putting others down. They are hurting them, which stems from a contemptuous, uh, superior attitude towards other people. It's pride. Then you have a drunkard. This is excessive indulgence in alcohol and frequent intoxication. This, of course, uh, to bring it into a modern context, would also include the abuse of drugs. To fully understand this, you have to understand uh, this, kind of the nuances of what Paul is saying here in that culture 2,000 years ago. Paul lived in what we would call a wine culture. Oh, yeah, you say, I know wine culture. I'm Italian. No, not even close to anything you have experienced or will experience today. You see, back then, there were no water processing plants. There were no chemical additives as much as you may complain about them in your tap water. They are saving your life. Water was dirty. It was diseased. It was deadly. It could be connected to sewage. So wine was used as an antiseptic to clean water. Wine was dried, or using the cooking term, reduced into a paste. And so you'd have this paste, 
and you throw a little bit in your jar or jug of water to cleanse and kill the impurities. We do that today. Oh, man, do we do that today with COVID, right? little alcohol to clean the impurities off of your hands. And so, of course, back then there was also the wine that was closer to what we know as wine today. Generally speaking, though, very much lower alcohol content. So this is the context, the cultural context he's speaking to. By the way, this is the context he's speaking to. So it helps us to understand that when Paul actually tells Timothy, for example, to take a little wine, it is not licensed necessarily to drink alcohol the way we may do it socially today. Okay? Jesus turned water into wine, right? He purified that water. That is not licensed to drink. I just want to say that. It's not wrong to drink. You've heard me say that before, but you cannot use this biblical principle to justify it either. Back to the context. So Paul is not calling for total abstinence in that culture because that would be a potential death knell for the entire church. What he was calling for was the same pursuit of discipline and regard for others that we as Christians are to have in every area of life. Discipline and selflessness. All of these in this list are type of people who, again, if they claim to be believers and are not repentant, are to be put out of the church to the degree that we are not even to socialize with them outside of the church. Now, this list has all the lists of vices that Paul lists uh, in all of his epistles is not exhaustive. In other words, it's not every sin that can be church-disciplined, but we still need to be careful when we add to it, stick to God's Word. So, to this point, Paul has clarified that he's not talking about those outside of the church. He's talking about those within the church, attending the church community, right? Because they may be unbelievers that call themselves Christians, so they're not literally the church, the body of Christ, but they're attending or being uh, part of the community. I think you understand this. And now he goes on to explain this distinction in regards to his and our as a church responsibility. The third clarification is the extent of the responsibility. The extent of the responsibility. Look at verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Verse 13 But those who are outside, God judges. Outsiders, of course, are those outside of the church. As such, they are not within Paul's jurisdiction as an apostle, as a pastor, as a Christian. So, might I add, they are outside of your jurisdiction. Verse 13, why? They are within God's and God's only jurisdiction. He will judge them. You don't need to judge them. You don't need to worry about them. They will do what they will do. It should actually surprise you if they don't act like unbelievers because they're unbelievers. However, we are to judge those who are within the church, anyone who claims the title Christian. And this judgment is essentially what this whole chapter has been saying. It is bringing an unrepentant sinner before the judgment bench, as it were, of the church. We then proclaim a verdict. Now, there's a strong emphasis here on the difference between those within and those without. The brethren and the world. In regard to the believers, we must judge. 
in regard to the unbeliever, it is none of our business. As a reminder, and I touched on this last week, what we're talking about is different than judging the heart, which we are prohibited from doing, and frankly, we do not have the ability to do. This is talking about judgment as in an objective verdict. In other words, if what this professed Christian does or say violates the Christian faith and all attempts of the church to apply the Scriptures in admonishment and bringing about repentance have failed, then the sinner must be judged, a verdict announced that he no longer belongs within the church. Put this all together, when it comes to those outside the church, you are free to associate with them because it is God, not you, who judges them. And when it comes to those inside the church, we must practice strict discipline because it is association with sinners within the church that makes us take on the impurity or sinful character of the sinner. The impurifying, the leavening effect, as we saw last week. So, the extent of our responsibility when it comes to disciplining others through judgment is confined to the body of Christ. How does that judgment play out? That leads us to our fourth clarification, the explicitness of the removal. The explicitness of the removal. We've seen three of the four clarifications to avoid defiling the church, the exception to the rule, unbelievers, the explanation of the requirement, believers, the extent of the responsibility, the judging, only those within the church, and now the explicitness of the removal, the end of verse 13 where he quotes an Old Testament passage. When you see all caps, it's because generally they are quoting an Old Testament passage which says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul again explicitly states what we know he has been saying all along. Remove this unrepentant sinner from the church. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 17.7. There, for Old Testament Israel, there was a theme of something you might have heard before, blood guilt. Blood guilt. This was a corporate responsibility in the tribe or even the whole nation of Israel all of them responsible for one person's sin. Millions for one. In other words, the whole community was held responsible even if it was just one among them. That's why it was then the community's responsibility to put him or her out. The purity of the church, the purity of God's people must be preserved. And when every step of church discipline has been taken and there is still no repentance, then the spiritual health and safety of the church can only be maintained with this swift and decisive action. Then the church returns to its pure, holy, unleavened state. And rest assured that since our power comes from God and the health of our relationship with Him, this is very important. A pure church is a powerful church. A pure church is a powerful church. And as a side note, 
And this is why it's so important that we don't just say, yes, church discipline, let's do it, keep our body pure, but you need to be just as serious about your own personal secret sins. Every sin that we impact that Paul lists for us in verse 11 has parallels in Deuteronomy. And for every one of them in Deuteronomy, God's people were either to, quote, purge the evil from among you or stone them to death, which in many cases was how they purged the evil from among you. Sin is serious. In addition to removing the impurity of the one for the purity of the whole, the removal of the evil had another goal or intended effect. And this was to make others in the community afraid so as to keep from doing the same thing. And to be perfectly frank with you, this is also true of church discipline. And when you think about it, striking fear in the hearts of the obedient so that they will refrain from delving into the same sin is yet another way that God keeps His church pure. And it is not the fear of man. It is the fear of God because it is God's decision and plan that we're talking about here. And so, to clarify, as Paul clarifies for the Corinthians, clarifying his previous letter, we need to understand what our role is as a church, what your role is as an individual Christian, and what your role isn't, that is, uh, judging unbelievers. Socially associating with unbelievers? Absolutely. Share the gospel. But just be careful that you're not using them because you're just trying to get ahead. Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? If it is the case that your neighbors and colleagues or whoever, relatives, are more aware of who you're going to vote for on November 3rd than they know who you worship and serve and will spend eternity worshiping, there is a problem, don't you think? If people know what your job is and don't know you're a Christian, there is a problem. What Christ's blood has done for you is more important than your DNA. Who your heavenly Father is is more important, as much as you are to love and honor them, who your biological father or adopted father is. Do you understand this? And so, when we use the world for the unimportant, then you've got it all mixed up and you have missed the whole point of the gospel. You've missed the whole point of God continuing for Adam and Eve to have children and to save Noah and his wife and for them to have children born as unregenerate to be saved by Jesus Christ to be salt and light in this world. When it comes to those within the church, 
we are to practice church discipline. But before that, I would hope and I would pray, as there have been in the past, hours, days, weeks, buckets of tears and begging and pleading, bloody knees from beseeching the Lord for repentance. But if it comes to this, we must do what God commands us to do for His glory and the purity of His bride. The exception to the rule, the explanation of the requirement, the extent of the responsibility, and the explicitness of the removal. Let's pray. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.